back to horror queers we're talking spa weekends with the girls we're talking slovakia and we're talking countess bathory arterial blood spray i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking the what i guess might be the death knell of the torture porn subgenre i mean i say that but it was kind of like in the middle of it because but okay, wait, wait, wait sorry we're talk- <laughs> take a breather jesus i know i'm like on crack already just like going through this shit um no well because okay so after this, it was really just, like, Saw movies that were coming out. Like, I don't think torture porn mm-hmm. really had much going on for it after. Because this is 2007. So, Correct. yeah, I don't... Anyway, we're talking Hostel Part 2. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> and we are amped the fuck up, everybody. We have been prepping for this all day long. I've watched this movie twice. I have done research on Abu Ghraib. I've listened to a podcast on the word cunt. I am ready to go. What is Abu Ghraib? That is the prison that U.S. prisoners put Iraqi prisoners of war into where they tortured them. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, well, I'm going to school you and everybody who's listening because it has to do partially, maybe, question mark, with why this film didn't do so well at the box office. Yeah, and I actually, because I re-listened to our episode in Hostel um, earlier today, and um, we had said that this movie flopped hardcore, and while it definitely was not, like, as successful as the first one, it actually wasn't a flop. Well, no, because it's so cheap, right? Right, that's exactly it. I mean, granted, it did not do well, (laughs) but... (laughs) Still got that sequel, but that sequel went direct to video. But I think the timing of the release is really going to play a factor into what... Well, I mean, same with you. Is like what you're saying with Abu, Abu Grave? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Okay, man, I, I don't know if I should know that. It's a dark period in your country's history. It's fine. I probably just... I mean, when this movie came out, I was... Oh, I was actually... It was the summer after my senior year of high school, so I was 18 years old. Well, the events I'm talking about occurred in 2003, but... Uh, got it. Yeah. Is, is that the, the one where they were, like, posting pictures of, like, decapitations happening? Correct. Where they were, like, videos? Yeah, genital mutilation, prisoners with bags over their heads. Gotcha. But Basically see, oh, a guess, real life hostel. But as, I guess if that's happening in 2003, then that probably is what really led to the creation of torture porn in general. Uh, Might have contributed to it, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, okay. Um, well, we'll just fucking get started. So, yes. Uh, Hostel Part 2, released on June 7th, 2007 by Lionsgate Pictures. Runtime of 94 minutes, or 95 if you watch the unrated version. Which, um, yeah, it's basically about 30 seconds longer. The only real differences are in uh, Heather Matarazzo's The Countess Bathory scene, um, which it's not even much more graphic, but it's like certain shots go on for like one or two seconds longer, specifically her throat slashing, which um, it shows her spraying a lot more. And then also in uh, Roger Bart's penile dis... Castration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Castration. (laughs) Like, are you looking for a fancy word? (laughs) I was like, I was like penile dismemberment. I don't... Ooh, get that trending, everybody. (laughs) Dispenismant. I I had seen because I've seen this movie a bunch and I, I I forgot that in this unrated cut like it is just full on like prosthetic dick when it gets cut off it is insane oh yeah yeah there is a, a chock full of peen 
Which I think, because I mean, and listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode on Hostel, go back and listen to it, um, because we talk a lot about the overt homophobia in that movie and the kind of mm-hmm. like toxic masculinity. And this movie, I think, takes a more critical eye on the toxic masculinity and is also not homophobic. Uh, well, depending well, on mm-hmm. how you're viewing it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it is, but there uh, we'll bring up some uh, opposing uh, or dissenting opinions. Yes. But you have a queer female lead in this movie. Correct. Although the word lesbian is literally never pronounced. We do hear the word gay, but never lesbian. When do they even say the word gay? Uh, Whitney says something about something being so gay. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> I don't even remember that. But you know what? At least they're not dropping fag and like... Oh, yeah. And at least these girls are tolerable, unlike the male leads from the first film, who you really just want to see get murdered. Right? Even Whitney, the BG Phillips character, who is like the quote-unquote unlikable one of the group. Yeah, she's the Paxton of the group. Right, but she's still like... I, I like her. Yeah, it's funny because I don't know that the actresses themselves are more likable than the male actors of the first film, but the characters are so much more tolerable and enjoyable. And I really, I, I this movie came out, oh fuck, it was like a year and a half after Hostel. So also, it, the turnaround wasn't that long, so the, mm-hmm. the fact that torture porn died that quickly is kind of insane. But yeah. it, this movie feels like a direct response to a lot of the criticisms he received from the first movie, Just, but... This one was much like more poorly received, not just commercially, but critically than the first movie. Correct. Yes. Actually, on all counts. So I managed to listen to the audio commentary. It's one of the reasons I watched the film twice. And he does talk a fair amount. Eli Roth does. He talks about how he made certain creative decisions in response to reactions from the first film. Well, that's good um, because I felt them. And that's also why I like this movie more. And I still like it more. It, it did hold up for me, but it did not hold up for you, not quite as much so originally i had this as a four i downgraded it to three and a half and i have a feeling i may be a bit more in line with some of the people who have criticisms of it i just found it's doing a couple of things really well and it's got some fascinating things to say but at the same time some of the problems bothered me a little bit more this time around. I do. If I, if I have like one major complaint, it's that it, the beginning of the movie, which I mean, I still think this movie flies by relatively quickly, but because it is a lot more of the same. And at least, at least when we come to the girls and like the setup for how we get to where we're going, right. The addition of like showing more from the elite hunters group is a very wise decision. And I think for the most part that pays off, but yeah, I think some of the setup for the girls, despite me enjoying my time with them more so than I did with the guys in the first movie. It just kind of feels like a little bit repetitive. Yes, and that's actually one of the major criticisms that people like to level at this film is that, oh, it's just too much of the same thing, only he's taken girls, and so it's super fucking misogynistic now, which I don't agree with. I don't agree with that either. And, and listeners, we, we mentioned this last week at the end of our Screen 2 episode, but we actually did try to get a couple different people. Um, we didn't ask them specifically. Well, no, I mean, we, no, we put this episode out for a couple different potential guests, and none of them wanted to cover this. They didn't say specifically, I don't want to do Hostel Part 2, but they kept picking other movies. <laughs> yes, we had a couple of blank entries, and we were sort of like, yeah, we're looking for guests on these dates, and people zeroed in on other dates and avoided this one like the plague. Which... <sighs> I really think, I mean, granted, this movie is very gory, and I do think it is gorier than the first movie. Or maybe not even gorier, but I think the violence is more visceral and effective. It feels gorier somehow. 
I don't I, think actually either of them are that gory, all well, things we, considered. It's it, as we talked about in that very first episode. Yeah, a lot of it is suggestion. There's a lot of editing away from the kills in this, but people I think have stronger reactions to this one, and I do think that it's because it's women. I do think so too. And we'll, we'll, as we go through the plot summary, like I'll mention parts where I'm like, oh, I'm surprised he didn't show X. Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically, honestly, it's Bijou Phillips's death. But there there are times where I'm like, oh, like it's interesting that he shows restraint here. But then he doesn't show restraint in this other part, you know? Yes. No, this is the paradox that is Eli Roth. He's so complicated, Trace. (laughs) But but to me, this movie felt like him growing, or at least, like, trying something different, kind of. Whereas, you know, some of his later works, as we discussed in the Hostel episode, like, I just, like, he he has yet to match this movie for me in terms of just quality and, like, dare I say maturity? I don't know. Yeah. So originally, because in that first episode, the game that we played was which of his filmography would you keep and which Mm -hmm. would you kill? And this time around, I was trying to think of some variation of that. But honestly, all of his movies just kind of ring the same to me. I don't feel like he really has matured as a filmmaker. But you're right. I think this is maybe his most adult offering i 100 percent agree with that the whole reason he's a thing is because quentin tarantino like pushed hostile for him and that's also one of the reasons why heather matarazzo who before this besides like princess diaries was like an indie darling for welcome to the dollhouse she only really did this because of quentin tarantino's involvement because she wanted to do something that tarantino had his hands on right so for this we get naked heather matarazzo (laughs) Which I'm still shocked by. Very shocked. I did find a good piece of uh, interview with her that I'll bring up when we discuss her death scene because I, I mean, I'm sure if there's one thing that is like that, the one scene that people will walk away from this movie like remembering is her death scene. And it's probably, I guess, the one that people would find the most misogynistic. You betcha. Okay. I, I'm interested to talk about that because, no, okay, we'll talk about it later. But anyway, so yeah, this movie opened June 7, 2007, and the number six spot with $8.2 million. Yeah. Not good. Also, a summer release when the first one came out in January. I think that's also quite perplexing. Like, so, torture porn, I mean, you have your saws coming out in October, and... I guess there was some, like, a Hills Have Eyes was March, but, like, I don't know. It just seems like a weird release date. Well, we've got a mini-sode coming up on January horror releases and whether or not they're controversial or good or bad. So we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. But I do wonder if they switched the release date for this because they thought they had a guaranteed summer performer on their hands. And that's possible. So it went on to grow $17.6 million total domestically, whereas the first one made like over $19 million its opening weekend in January of 06. Internationally, it made $18 million, and that made for a worldwide gross of $35.6 million. Again, it gets a $10 million budget, so it's fine. But what I didn't know is um, apparently before the release, a work print of the film leaked online, and a New Zealand publication claimed that it was the most pirated film ever. Which Eli Ross suggested was a factor in the film's failure at the box office. Yeah, I had never heard that before I started looking into the film. So that was a bit surprising. Also, interesting response considering that we just talked about Scream 2, which also had a script leak. But I guess a work print is a very different, like, this is actual footage that they're not going to reshoot. Also, I hope that person got fired of whoever was in charge of guarding that work print. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, this is the difference between 1997 and 2007, right? Like, if you lose something in 2007, it's everywhere. You can't get it back. Whereas in Scream 2, it's like, oh, people had to describe the scenes or reproduce it from the photocopies. Right. And I, I'm sure it did contribute to it, but honestly, I just can't see that many people really wanting to pirate this movie just based on the public interest in torture porn declining over those years. Uh, I mean, I think it's a way for Eli Roth to maybe save a little bit of face, but I don't doubt that there were probably, I mean, we all know people who pirate movies and there's a lot of people who say, you know what, I'm interested in seeing this, but I don't want to pay for it. So if there's already a small number of people who are going to go and see this and then you're cutting into that by people who are like, well, I could just get it for free. Yeah, it is going to have an impact. But again, it's like okay Eli Roth I mean if people really wanted to see it they would be out there supporting it so maybe the interest was also not there yeah so critics didn't like it either uh Rotten Tomatoes of 44% with an average score of 5.03 out of 10 audience score of 39% with an average score of 5.76 out of 10 and as we discovered last week a positive audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is a 3.5 out of 5 or higher um mm. which is stupid which is basically a 7 out of 10 uh, Metacritic is 46 out of 100 with a user score of 52 out of 100. So uh, that's actually not that bad. I mean, uh, we discussed this with Hostel too. Uh, well, because Hostel actually got positive reviews. I think it had a fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes with like 60 something percent. Um, I, I, even though your opinion on the film went down, Joe, did you still like this one more than the first one? I do. Yeah, I actually downgraded my review of the original even lower. So Hostel okay. 2 is 3.5, Hostel is 3. Yeah, that's that's what I thought as well. You know, he kept mostly his same crew from the first movie, and it's a lot of the same people. And then, you know, he got his three girls, and I guess he watched a lot of Desperate Housewives because the two killers in this movie are... Well, I mean, one of them is Richard Berge, who is most known for being Terry Hatcher's husband on Desperate Housewives. But then Roger Bart also had a had a, like a season-long arc as one of uh, Brie Vandekamp's stalker pharmacist people. Yes, uh, that is actually pure coincidence. He says on the audio commentary that he has never actually seen the show because he doesn't have time for TV. Um, I bet that's a lie. I bet he thought that if he told people he watched Desperate Housewives, his horror bros would like like eviscerate him so he's like what i've never seen desperate housewives he doesn't say how he came across roger bart but he definitely says that richard berge was the first person that he auditioned for the role of todd and he just 100 percent nailed it do we want to discuss the marketing and posters before during after I think we should do it before, and I think we should talk about the state of horror in 2007, just yeah. as some of the reasons why this film maybe wasn't received as well. Well, okay, I, I agree with that. So I think a lot of the marketing on this film went off on shock value, not just in mm -hmm. the posters and the... Because the trailer even was like a minuscule, like it was like a teaser trailer, which I'm in support of, but what people thought Hostel was, which was just people getting tortured is yeah. what that trailer promoted yeah it's not changing anyone's opinions that's for sure it was also subtitled it was spoken in a foreign language oh really hmm. yeah it was spoken i I'm, i don't know i, I didn't rewatch it before this but i remember seeing it in theaters and yeah it's basically just someone like you know the camera pans over torture materials and you have like someone talking about like you know oh like stuff torture stuff blah 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 and is it's it slovakian Maybe I don't know, but then okay. it, but then it blacks out and it just goes and it's like hostile Tiltsweit like whatever part two is in that language. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um, no, but 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 so that's that. Their posters. Do, do you want to do a rundown of these four posters? 
Sure. So in the original Hostel episode, we talked about the posters and how they all have weird homoerotic components to them. They seem to lose some of that playfulness, or maybe that gay guy got fired, because (laughs) these posters are very straightforward. We're trying to confirm our horror cred. So the first one that they released is a teaser poster, and it just looks like a slab of cut up flesh it, yeah it's it, we're not talking like butcher shop like meat it's like the in like a dissection like the inside of something's body yeah it's actually quite gnarly looking naturally that did not fly so a bunch <laughs> of theater patrons were like what is that get that out of my eyesight <laughs> i was actually working at the at a movie theater when that poster was released and i did not get my hands on it i was so mad because i was like that's like a fucking collector's item Oh, for sure. Yeah, because it got pulled, so it did not stay up. So they went back to the drawing board and came back with a black and white poster of Bijou Phillips, topless and holding her own head. It's like behind her back, right? Like she's holding it like above her butt. Yeah. So it basically looks like she's been decapitated and she's holding her own head. And that also drew complaints. <laughs> Shockingly enough, you can't show tits in some movie theater lobby. I think the nipples were probably like blurred out or not blurred out, but like digitally erased because it's a, it's a profile shot of her body. It is. Yes. Uh, but needless to say, that did not fly. So then they combined the two. So it's like a fleshy Bijou Phillips holding her own head. And I never saw that one. I only ever saw it on, um, like online. So the one that everyone mostly associates with the film is a shot of Heather Moderato hanging upside down. Yes, that that's the one I remember the most. So I'm trying to look at this meaty Bijou Phillips because a that's a crazy description. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag meaty Bijou Phillips. <laughs> oh, I see it. Okay, honestly, I didn't even know that was Bijou Phillips, but it also does spoil. I mean, it spoils her death entirely because that is how she dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So most people know the Heather Moderato one, and then there's one also with Roger Bart, and this one again kind of goes back to the homoerotic stuff. So he's just outfitted in his leather gear and then he's holding is it a drill at his crotch yeah it's a drill at his crotch yeah which again I, I almost hate that they do him on it because one of one of my favorite subversions of this film is the flip-flop between those two characters once they start torturing right yes uh and i think interestingly enough that's also one of the main criticisms is that roger burt is for lack of a better term kind of a protagonist of this movie mm-hmm yeah uh, but we'll get there. That's the thing, maybe, is that, you know, they are marketing towards just, like, people who want to see graphic violence. But that's the thing, though. You, you, you've already seen the first one, which, as we discussed in that episode, w- isn't as violent as people remember. But people walk away from it thinking it's a lot more violent than it actually is just because of all the suggestion of it. This sequel was also banned in a lot of countries. And I think they got a lot of mileage out of publicizing that. Or it just reinforced this idea that people already had in their minds that they were not a good fit for this movie because look at all the outrage it's generating. Yeah, so I mean, I have like a little list, but basically a court in Munich ruled the release of the film in its cut or uncut form to be punishable by law. The film was banned outright in New Zealand upon submission to the ratings board after the distributor refused to make cuts in order to receive the R18 certificate. But it did get a DVD release. And then on October 7th, October 8th, 2007, so this is like months after the movie came out. Oh, it was cited as a, in the House of Commons of the United Kingdom as an example where stills from the film could be illegal to possess under the proposed law to criminalize possessions of extreme pornography. Yeah, which is just insane. And the, the person who actually presented that, who was uh, like the MP, 
actually ended up admitting that he had never even seen the film. He had just been reassured by people that it was completely misogynistic and disgusting. Yes, I have that quote. Yeah, it's, uh, he was assured by trusted sources that from beginning <laughs> to end, it depicts obscene misogynistic acts of br- brutality against women, which again, is not true. <laughs> no, and on, I mean... <laughs> People in the UK can correct us, but I love it every time you see a news report that comes out of Britain where they talk about a trusted source and you're like, is this the Daily Mail UK? Because that's like a like a tabloid kind of site. It's like the National Enquirer in the States. <laughs> More or less, yeah. Just, oh, a trusted source. <laughs> like, who is not going to go on record for that? That's not controversial. So some of this stuff ended up drawing some people's ire so if you look at the wikipedia page for this there's a fairly prominent woman who she dabbles in film criticism but also she's a lawyer her name is julie hilden and she wrote a piece called free speech and the concept of torture porn why are critics so hostile to hostile too and in it she basically just goes through why were critics so mean to the film And it's almost the same argument as what this MP is doing, which is just that people went into this film with preconceived notions about the violence and because it was women and they just immediately turned on it. So even though this film does have uh, people who support it, it also has a lot of people who seem to just want to nitpick the depiction of violence against women, which is... I mean, it's it's a valid criticism it's a valid complaint and i mean anyone who like i mean again someone posted on our our, one of my facebook threads today and was like i just i need a pg-13 version of this movie i I can't why i don't want to watch this again and i'm like i get it it's Mm -hmm. it's not easy to watch i do still think though i mean mostly with this movie and because the the humor is still there there's still plenty of darkly comedic moments in this movie that i personally think are more effective than the ones in the first movie especially when it comes to the editing. There's a couple edits like after like lines of dialogue where it's like, oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, and Eli Roth is on record as saying that he doesn't actually consider this a sequel per se. He sees this as a continuation of the same story. So he identified elements that people said they really responded to in the first film, and then he fleshed those out to tell more or less what happens after the events of the first film. I mean, that is the case. I mean, it, it, it does. The beginning of this film reminds me of Friday the 13th Part 2, where it's like we're following the protagonist of the first movie and they die. But we also get like a lot of recap footage of the first movie. Or a Halloween Resurrection. Or, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, or if we're going there, Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, which is 40 minutes of recap <laughs> of the first movie. <laughs> I never really buy that argument. I mean, that argument, but that statement was, oh, it's not a sequel. It's a continuation of the first film. I'm making an eight-hour movie. The only movie that, that has really worked for for me in terms of like, oh, the, it, it's not its own movie. It's, like, it's a continuation. And we've discussed this before is Insidious Chapter 2, where it's like that movie to me doesn't work on its own, but it does work if you just consider it the third act of the first movie. Not completely, but it works better. <laughs> Right, yeah. I have seen a couple of people online comment that if you play these back to back, they do feel like the like the second one is paying it off. But I agree. I think this is also a film that does stand on its own. And it's very clearly made, as we've suggested, based on criticisms and observations from that first film. Like this is Eli Roth responding in part to criticism that he received on the first film and him trying to address it while simultaneously fleshing out the world of the film. 
So as we talked about when we talked about hostile part one, torture porn is a combination of different terms. So you've got this concept of torture, which involves you know, sadomasochistic pleasure, you know, there's interrogation, it gets depicted in spy movies, and it's used in police interrogations, and all these other things. And then, of course, pornography, which is this idea that people might be getting off on it, or we're showing skin. So you put them together, and you get this very clever, very marketable term. Of course, when you think about the concept of a torture porn film, there's actually very little torture in it because the torture isn't about interrogation at all. It's actually just about power relations. So it's about someone hurting somebody else, typically for pleasure. So now if we put 2007 into perspective. So the reason that I brought up Abu Ghraib, so this is in response to the war in Iraq that began in March of 2003, and the U.S. Army and Central Intelligence Agency, aka the CIA, they committed a series of human rights violation against detainees in the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. And uh, the fun thing is, is that you can go online and you can see pictures of the physical, sexual abuse, the torture, the rape, the sodomy and the murder of detainees. Uh, this came out in April of 2004 via a CBS News, but the reason that it's important for this particular film, it gets brought up in an article that I did for research called Hostile to Representations of the Body in Pain and the Cinema Experience in Torture Porn Ooh. by Gabriel Murray for Jump Cut. But she talks about this in perspective because it was in 2006 that 279 photos and 19 videos were released and made available on Salon.com. So you could see edited footage, like blurry pictures. Uh, they weren't lingered on in the CBS news report. And then all of a sudden, it's all over the fucking net. So it's like it became too real at that point then. And do you think that's like a contributing factor to like people getting turned off because it's like oh i've seen the actual torture and it is not entertaining mm -hmm. yeah if you i mean fucking heavy 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 trigger warning you can find pictures and videos like they're all still up there and they look like something that you would see in Teristas or Captivity or Hostel. See, it's so funny too because Teristas, i mean that movie also flopped and i actually don't hate that movie i mean it's not great but it's like you know passable fine thriller but that's also not that gory. I think there's one organ transplant scene that's, like, kind of disturbing, also on a woman, which makes it even, like, somewhat... Well, mm -hmm. do I want to say it makes it even more disturbing to say it's been done on a woman? Because then, I, I don't know. Like, does that make it be like, oh, like, women are inherently more, I don't know, sympathetic? I mean, this is this is one of the main arguments that gets leveled against slasher films, right? Is that it's watching women in sustained panic and fear and death and mutilation so that's why people have often said slasher films are just as misogynistic and then torture porn takes it that step further right or a couple steps further to be honest a couple steps yeah so that's the real life situation in 2006 or like heading into 2007 by this point we had had three saw films wolf creek and then in 2006 alone we had silent hill hatchet turistas and the remake of hills have eyes so these are not all considered torture porn but a lot of them did have levels of increased gore and 
all of that kind of leveled at them, right? There was a lot of this kind of imagery floating around, or people knew there was more on the horizon. Yeah, and I think, because you said Captivity was the month before this, right? No, Captivity is actually like a couple weeks after this. It comes out in early July of 2007. Really? God, I don't know why I remember that coming out in April. Because, again, this is the time I was working at a movie theater, so I just remember all these movies coming out. But, uh, yeah, jeez, that is... um. That is some shit. Yeah. And as you said offline before we started recording, Captivity, I think, is really, that's the one that just puts the nail in the coffin for torture porn for a lot of people. I remember there was outrage about the marketing campaign where it had Alicia Cuthbert in a cage and it, like, all of those got pulled off of billboards. And then that movie arrived. It was DOA. And after that, all we get is saw films. Yeah. Well, but Captivity, honestly, is is just a woman being tortured from beginning to end. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that douchebag from the UK or whatever, he really should have been focusing on that shit. Exactly. Right? Okay. So, so I... I mean, I don't know that you can ever point to any one mitigating factor about why a film doesn't do well, but if you want to think about the print leak, the controversy, turning people off, as well as just this deluge of movies, a lot of them not great or not well-received, it was not a very receptive welcome for a film like Hostel 2. I mean, I think it's also a combination of, yeah, like franchise, and not franchise, but like subgenre fatigue. You know, we go mm-hmm. through horror remakes, we go through J horror, we go, we go through torture porn, you know? Yeah. It's just subgenres have like this two or three year gap of like success. But I think because this one was, it's such like a, a niche subgenre that it didn't last as long as it, as people thought it was going to. Yeah. And I think this is the one that people really hold up. Like if you say torture porn, people say Saw and they say hostile, but people find Saw films playful. Like they like Jigsaw. He's arguably one of the closest things that we have to a modern um yeah a slasher villain or a horror villain yeah, yeah yeah somebody that people like you know they like the doll on the tricycle they like jigsaw which is ironic because when hot hatchet was coming out i remember like the trailer was blasting like a review quote which i think was from harry knowles actually mm. but saying like the next icon of horror and it's like mm, oh, yeah maybe not <laughs> i know some people who love those hatchet movies i'm just like a victor crowley is not an interesting like he is so Jason-esque to me. I just can't be bothered. Well, which is probably why they thought that about him. But I mean, I like those movies. Um, They are stupid, though. Intentionally so, uh, but still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen the first one. I haven't seen any other. Um, oh, two and three have Daniel Harris. I've seen the later Halloween films, but I don't remember much of them. So Daniel Harris doesn't mean that much to me. Okay, well, she's good in it, so you say. <laughs> okay. But yeah, anyway, so, okay. That All right. Table is set. Now let's d- dive into this bitch. Let's do it. So we open up with our protagonist from the first film, Paxton, Jay Hernandez. He is awoken by security on the train and taken to the hospital where he is questioned by the police about the factory in Slovakia. We get a little bit of imagery from part one, including a montage of his bloody escape. And then they mention the bloodhound tattoo and they link him to the body of salad fingers, which was found in the bathroom stall. And at this point, the police attack him and it is revealed that he is, oh, he's just dreaming. He's actually fine. Well, he's not exactly fine. He's suffering from some pretty obvious PTSD. He's staying with his girlfriend, Stephanie, who is played by Jordan Ladd, Eli Roth regular. 
I love, and I like it makes me so. I mean, I know we'll, I know you want to discuss Grace one day, but like I, mm-hmm. I do love her. She's great in that movie, but like I just wish she was more famous. Did I tell you that I saw her at a convention once, and I, I asked her, I was like, "Are you doing anything like that? Like the exciting that's coming up?" And she literally looks at me and like rolls her eyes and like sighs, and she goes, "Ugh, nothing you'd be interested in." And I was like, "Oh, that's so depressing." No, and I was like, "You'd be surprised, try me." She goes, "I'm doing a lot of Lifetime stuff," and I was like, "No, yeah. I, <laughs> I'll still watch it." <laughs> I mean, David Dakota, we love you, but Lifetime, no. But, and, and this this is like five years ago. This is like my first uh, time I did it. It's called Texas Primer Weekend in Dallas. But she was super nice, really chill. And I just, I, I, you know. But no, I, I'm glad that she's in this movie. But what I love or hate about her character in this scene is that she's like, he's freaking out. And her line is like, I took you back because I felt bad, but you're going crazy. I can't sleep. Yeah. Her big <laughs> thing is just that he keeps having nightmares and waking her up. And she's like... I mean, we came out to my grandmother's house and you won't let me talk to my sister and all I want to do is sleep. You're like, girl. (laughs) She does not come across as likable in this scene at all. Well, and she knows what happened to him. I could understand if he hasn't told her, but she clearly knows that Josh is dead because she mentions it and she just has no sympathy for him. (laughs) No, she's, and that makes the, the the reveal of his corpse. Like when we don't really get to see her reaction to it makes me feel a little cheated. Yeah. So she, she wakes up in bed the next day and he is nowhere to be found. And she comes downstairs after seeing somebody cutting the branches off a tree. This is Eli Roth being funny. Ha ha. There's a person with a chainsaw. And then we come downstairs and oh, there's a decapitated body. I do like that you can hear the cat licking his like neck wound before they even reveal the body. Yes. Eli Roth has an interesting relationship to animals in this movie, doesn't he? Yeah, a lot of animal stuff, a lot of really gooey sound design that really pays off, but um, yeah. I will say the prosthetic decapitated Jay Hernandez, that is looking good, though. Like, that neck wound is gory. The effects all look good. And, of course, it should come as no surprise that um, uh, Nicotero did yeah. all of the special effects for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. So that's basically our open. And at this point, we don't really reference that apart from the fact that there is a biker who delivers uh, Paxton's head to a new character named Sasha. He is not named here. We'll find out his name later. But he is played by Milan Nosco, and he is the owner of the Elite Hunting Club. And Trace, what is our fun fact about Milan Nosco? <laughs> our fun fact. Um, so he is the former Slovak Minister of Culture and mm-hmm. is one of the leading personalities of the Public Against Violence movement in November 1989, which is even more ironic that he's in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, so he was an actor before he became a like a member of the public service. But I just love the fact that like what a weird casting choice. And apparently he loved it. Like he loved this idea that he was going to be this terrible person in this torture gore splatter he actually has a lot of fun with casting small parts in general like the art teacher that's coming up is some old actress that had like retired 15 years prior or five years prior the 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 director of cannibal holocaust is a cameo in this movie eli roth knows cinema he knows italian cinema especially and it shows i mean his love for the genre shows it's just his boyish things like boyish mindset that sometimes get the better of him 
Yeah, which is why he gets along so well with Quentin Tarantino, right? Because right. they both love cinema and they know it really well, but they also act like fucking school children. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually one of the more enjoyable parts about going back to listen to our episode on part one is just how much we rag on the relationship between the two of them. Oh, they're totally fucking behind the scenes and masturbating to their, well, t- to torture porn. Yeah, they totally jerked off into Jay Hernandez's, like, fake. <laughs> yes. And then that cat licked it up. Yeah. Okay, so let's introduce our new ladies for the film. Let's cut to Beth, Lauren German. Wait, we cut to penis, I feel like. Like, it's like an immediate penis shot. It is. Eli Roth, this is his attempt to address criticism by female fans that there were too many boobs in the first film, so he wanted to begin and end Hostile 2 with dick. Which... You know what? Mission accomplished. I will take it. I will. T- yeah. Because I, I think even when XL comes out later, I don't even think we get a full shot of her like nude body. He like cuts away, which I was like, good for you, Eli Roth. Yeah, it's like a glimpse of boob, but not anything more than that. And her nipples were CGI'd out, actually. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I personally appreciate that. I am super offended by nipples. Get those fuckers away from me. <laughs> Can't wait to do Jason X so we can just get rid of the nipples. I know. He, oh, God. <laughs> Stay tuned. Um, no, but I, I actually, do we, oh, I was like, do we see any bush in this movie? But it's it's Heather Matarazzo's bush, but that's okay. Yeah. The the bush you least expect to see. Yeah. I, so, hey, so sorry. I enjoyed So we, we have penis and then we have Beth. Yeah. Penis Beth, yes. So, <laughs> Lauren German, I forgot that she played the hitchhiker in our remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. See, that's the only thing I know her from is that, but she she was also the head bitch in A Walk to Remember, which I forgot. I haven't seen it. Sorry, Cody. Oh, dude, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's saccharine as fuck, but it's really sweet. Isn't it basically the notebook for kids? Yeah, but it came out before that. I mean, it's Nicholas okay. Sparks. And there's, okay. of course, it's like, you know, death. Right. But I, cause I was like, oh, she, like, she hasn't done anything since this movie. Um, she has made a living on TV. Oh, really? Yes. So she was on two seasons of Chicago Fire playing a lesbian mm. again. Yes. But she gets killed in the third season. But then yeah. she's she's also been on uh, a main character on the show Lucifer since the, since the beginning. <gasps> oh, right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and that's a four-season run. Although it's, I think... I think it. I I thought Netflix renewed it, or maybe they renewed it for season four, and that was it. I don't know, but yeah, one of the two. It's either got one more season, or yeah, yeah. She's had steady work since since this show ended, uh, since this movie came out, and I was like, you know what, good for her. Mm. Yeah, get that TV money. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So that's Beth. We've got Lorna, who is Heather Moderato, and then we've got Whitney, who is Bijou Phillips, and they are Americans, and they're just in Rome, you know, studying life drawing doing art stuff (laughs) it's unclear if this is just a summer thing for them or if they're actively pursuing a degree every plot summary i found said that they were art students so i'm gonna i'm gonna say it was a degree although i don't buy for a second that bj phillips's character is like a serious artist yeah i mean in the commentary eli roth basically just says he put a he put a drawing pad into their hands so that he could get the dick in there (laughs) Okay. Because, like, you can't just have a nude man because people will cry foul, but if you have a nude man and then you have people doing a drawing of it, then it's art. Well, that's your difference then, though, is, like, he presents the male art form as a form of art, but in all the other, for all the female nudity, it's not mm-hmm. classy nudity. 
Well, and this film sort of takes a step back from the first film's treaties about vulgar Americans and the depiction of Europeans as threatening. There's a little bit, but it really disappears the minute that they decide they're not going to go to Prague, that they're going to go instead to Slovakia. Well, but it's really, yeah, because though the introduction, not the, but like the exploration of the elite hunting group, like takes it away as like oh it's just all europeans and it's like oh no it's this actual like club you know yeah and a lot of americans this time yeah yep yep yeah so the other important thing about this is that obviously we get introduced to our female villain for the film axel and she is played by vera jordanova uh she has not acted since this i don't think but she's a model basically I mean, she gorge. Yeah, she's so super No hot. big surprise. Although, of course, I have heard people criticize this film for depicting lesbians as skinny white girls. Uh, that is not incorrect. I actually do like her performance in this movie, though. I do, too, actually. I think she's better than the two girls from the first film. And maybe it's just because she's used differently. Like, she is the honeypot for this entire film, as opposed to those two girls who are just kind of flirty, vapid. Yeah, but... but uh, <sighs> But that, that's kind of why, I, I mean, okay, we'll, we'll talk about homophobia coming up, I'm sure. But that's why I kind of like the the lesbianism that's in this movie as opposed to, like, how they're done in the first movie. Well, why do, why do you like it? Why do you think it works better here? Is because it's more subtle? Subtle. I also feel like it. there's an, like an honest honesty to it that I just feel like... And maybe it's just because it's not douchey, you know? It's like the idea of these men going over there being like because the the way that male sexuality is presented in hostel is like very much like like straight up just fucking, you know? They just care about tits and pussies, yes. fucking. And <laughs> pussy. This seems more tender though, and I, and granted, a lot of this is a combination of German's performance, and I I do think that Roth writes Beth very well. Yes, yeah, I think he writes her better, and then she humanizes the character a mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's also a bit of a chaste love affair right like this isn't lecherous the most we get is a bit of a back massage so and that's also like there's that restraint again like we don't because i i, I you know when you think oh either Ross is gonna make a movie where a lesbian is the lead isn't the first thing you're gonna think of oh it's gonna be this fucking male gazely ogling like fetishizing like girl on girl action and he doesn't do that yeah i mean he does but it's not it's not to the level where you're thinking oh my god this is disgusting because it's still there there's still a lot of longing looks between these two girls there are but it's not like you know them fucking scissoring each other you know no it's not good manners this is true like (laughs) that's true (laughs) but i feel less like it's 13 year old eli roth making this movie than i did in the first movie yes i agree with that Okay, so we get a little bit of exposition about who these girls are. A quick phone call from Best Father clarifies that she is super rich and he is overprotective. (laughs) Only the first thing really plays in, so just bear in mind, super rich. And Whitney doesn't get along very well with Lorna because she feels that she is sexually experienced. She's mildly awkward. She really isn't happy when Beth invites Lorna to come along with them. And this clarifies that... Whitney is a bit of a bitch that Lorna is mildly awkward and 
that Beth is just a genuinely kind girl. Yeah, and I think, though, and they don't really explore it much, um, but Lorna does have, like, a mental illness. Yeah, I heard somebody, one of the criticisms that I saw in a half-star letterbox review of this film is that they kill an autistic girl. And I was like, she's not artistic. She is medicated from something that is not clarified. I was saying, so we don't see what the, because I remember the pills falling. I didn't remember if they showed what the label was. No, they don't. It's basically like it's uh, I think it's either antidepressants or anxiety medication. That's what Eli Ross said. Gotcha. Well, because um, so um, Heather Wixson with Daily Dead did an interview with Heather Matarazzo um, last April, actually. So it's very recent. But she mentions that the reason that she came on the, on the film was a Quentin Tarantino. But she also wanted to spend three months in Prague. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Again, girls get on that. <laughs> Um, but she, yeah, exactly. But she goes, I liked my character though. And the truth is, and the truth is that the reason Lorna is so relatable is because I think that we all have had that within us, right? We all have something that we're struggling with, but I thought it was interesting how she was also dealing with some mental health issues, which was something that I think was often overlooked then too. It's interesting for me to look back now over 10 years from when I initially came onto the project and getting to see how she was this young woman who was very, very sheltered and very naive, but there was a slight sense of privilege and entitlement to, to her and her friends. Yeah, I think more so the friends than her, but I do remember criticisms and this is me personally, as opposed to being able to generalize it. But uh, some of the people that I knew who had seen it criticized this particular character, like Lorna, as being annoying because she's kind of whiny. She's kind of ditzy. Like she doesn't, she seems ill prepared for the world. And they were less surprised that she falls victim to this. I mean, I, I don't disagree that it's surprising that she's, that it's not surprising that she's the first one to go. But is she ill prepared? Yes. But I think I think 10 years ago, I did find her annoying. But now I'm kind of like, oh, like, you know what? She's just an innocent, like, girl. Yeah. Well, maybe now's a good time to actually, I mean, we're super long into this. But I think it's actually a very valid point that you and I should bring this up. When we told people we were covering this, not only was it difficult to find a guest for this, we got a lot of pushback from people just being like, I can't watch this film. I don't like it. Yeah. I just think these films are misogynistic or they're just offensive. And I really feel like people need to revisit this movie because I think they have misconceptions or they have a weird haze on how it plays out. If you go back and watch this, this film is totally fucking prescient around how women get treated by men like when they're traveling how how they get drugged like it felt timely then and it feels even more so now no I, I, there's a moment later in the film at the, at the festival when um that creepy uh concierge gives beth a drink and she looks at it and she's like uh no and she like tosses it out and i'm like there's so yeah. many good moments on like i'm like and that's why that's why I again I wish we had a female on this particular episode and why I was trying to get we were trying to get one for this because I think that the female uh, opinion of this movie would, might I'm interested to know what what women think of this and if it's maybe even scarier for them because not only are they faced with the task of like oh like you know I'm, we might get killed but it's like yeah like it's men taking advantage of women drugging them like you know Lorna pretty much has that exact same thing happen to her yeah. Well, and that's a good segue back into the plot. So they're they're headed to Prague for a quickie vacation. And at this point, they see that Axel is on the train. And they they try to score drugs. Whitney tries to play into 
a, a female persona that will be easier to manipulate men, shall we say. And it's obviously very much a performance, but she runs afoul of some really skeezy Italian guys. And by the way, this is Eli Roth commenting on 70s Jello, where it's a group of women travel over a long weekend or go on a vacation. They get in over their heads and they end up getting brutally murdered. So yeah, he says the first film is in reference to Asian cinema and this film is in reference to Giallo. So I'm actually also a little surprised that you like it as much, Trace. I know, right? Well, because it, it's not narratively stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but but uh, I, he actually does a he has a, a few cool filmmaking techniques techniques in this film. Um, one of them though is I love is when um they're off doing that. Lord is in the room and there's the creepy guy like looking at her, and they go through a tunnel and like when the lights come back on, he's all of a sudden like in the room behind her. Ugh, it's so creepy. I love it. It's really good. Yeah, and he I I love the fact that there's no subtlety to any of this either. So when you see this man, he looks like a rapist oh yeah 100 <laughs> percent. i mean don't ask me to go on record as to what a rapist looks like but when you see this guy you can very obviously tell he's trouble but then the film subverts your expectations because all he does is steal her ipod which sends her in a tizzy mm-hmm. because it's only a way to get xl into their car Exactly. Yeah. So Excel uses this as an opportunity to say, oh, well, you know what? You're just going to be encountering more of these assholes like the guys that tried to sell you drugs or this guy who stole your iPod. Right. You should come with me to the spa in Slovakia. (laughs) And the other important thing to note here is that we get the first taste of best reaction to the word cunt. Oh, yes. I forgot about. Oh, I I didn't forget about this. I knew this. Yes. Yes. Um, Go ahead, Joe. Explain it. (laughs) Okay. So these Italian guys that Whitney is trying to score drugs off of, they're obviously, you know, they're, they're very nice. They invite the girls to stay in their room. They want to party with them. Oh, there's three of you. Oh, there's a bunch of us. And the girls get very clearly uncomfortable with this idea. These boys are skeezy, so it's no surprise. And they start to find a way to get out of it. And as soon as they say, no, you know what, we're fine. Don't, don't worry about us. We're going to go. These guys just flip on a dime and they, the main guy calls Beth, like, don't be, you know, like, an American cunt or something. Yeah, it basically he calls her a cock tease, but he uses the word cunt and she flips out on him and like to the point where she looks like she wants to fight him and Whitney has to pull her back and chastise her gently to say, you know, we're not on campus, you can't go to the dean and complain about this. And no, and then it's like yeah, and she's like I just hate that word. I hate it so fucking much. And it's like I've never heard of like Chekhov's cunt before, <laughs> but right? it, it plays a big part later. <laughs> It really does. And I think this is, again, an interesting feminist critique. So I mentioned I was doing research. I I tweeted this out on our Horror Queers Twitter account that I was researching the word cunt just to Mm -hmm. see if I could, you know, be. Yeah, you're probably on some list now. (laughs) Well, because this film very knowing, like, you're right, this is it's Chekhov's cunt. And yes, we're saying it a lot. And part of the reason that I want to say this and that I wanted to do research on it is because this is such a powerful, controversial word, right? It is. It's arguably, it's faggot for us Mm -hmm. and it's cunt for women and there's a historical relationship to the way people react to these and we've actually had people come down on us for using the word cunt uh somebody somebody challenged us in one of our written articles on bloody because we called a female character cunty 
Oh no no! I refer to my to you as being cunty or myself as being cunty. But yeah, but yes, that, I mean, that sounds a lot more appropriate actually. <laughs> but 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 nevertheless, yeah no, you're right. Um, and, uh, I, I've made clear this podcast before. I love using the word cunt, but like it's it's a harsh word. And I've met plenty of women or men actually that just say I cannot say that word. I don't like that exactly. word. And, and I get it. I I get it. I just like saying it. So basically, at this point. Yes, a spa in Slovakia sounds great. Let's go there. And editing humor, they say, do you know a good place we can stay? Cut to a sign that says hostel. (laughs) Yes, and of course, this is a very familiar hostel. (laughs) Okay, so they arrive at this hostel. They check in. It's the same concierge as the first film, who apparently Eli Roth discovered was a he was kind of the breakout of the first hostile film so he wanted to bring him back and also to clarify that he was in on it the whole time because it's actually left ambiguous in the first film mm. well no this is when we get like because he, he takes their pass takes their passports <laughs> yeah. to go xerox them well if you travel in europe this is actually not that's not that rare so there are certain places where they will take your passport and they will keep them under lock and key just to make sure that you don't run off so that's what happens in the first film and then there's other places where they will take a photocopy of it so that they have proof of who's staying there but in both cases of course eli roth is doing that thing where he's turning a conventional regular event into something that could potentially be scary gotcha So as they're getting checked in, the concierge guy talks about the Harvest Festival that's happening that night. At this point, Whitney says, oh, she doesn't want to go to that because the event sounds gay. Gotcha. But that's the one instance compared to like the 50 instances in the first movie. (laughs) Correct. And she also changes her mind when she sees a hot guy named Miroslav, who is played by Stanislav Ivnesky, a.k.a. Victor Krum from Harry Potter. And when she sees that he's interested, she changes her mind. Woo. Oh, while we're talking about Bijou Phillips being unlikable, um, I didn't. I found this out today, and I was kind of upset. Heather Matarazzo apparently was um, about a year sober when she arrived in Prague, um, and she attended a get to know you party prior to shooting. She claimed she was constantly offered pills by producers to help her beat the jet lag and get some sleep, but she always turned them down. But she alleged that when Bijou Phillips found out she was sober, she pushed her against a wall and choked her for fifteen to twenty seconds and said, "I'm going to make you relapse on this film." And Matarazzo was too embarrassed to tell the directors or producers about the incident. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. I know. Sorry, BG Phillips, if that was true. That's, uh, you're, you're a bitch. Yeah. That's enough to get you canceled right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, downer note. Um, <laughs> so continue. <laughs> <laughs> so as you alluded to earlier, the concierge scans their passports. And at, this is the 24-minute mark of the film. We've only followed these girls, as well as our introduction with Paxton. And this is where we get the introduction to the elite hunting group more properly, as well as the first of three bidding sequences in the film. So we see pictures of each of the girls. There's a subsequent bidding war with a bunch of generic men one of whom is asian one of whom is a woman who is on horseback for some reason (laughs) and all the rest are white guys and one of the important things to notice in this montage as they're bidding away breaking 50k on each of these girls most of the men that are presented have wives and or children just to really Mm -hmm. reinforce that these are your everyday rich asshole white guys i 
love this sequence. I think this is probably one of the best sequences in the movie. And I think in reviews, positive or negative, it's one of the highlights that people point out. Well, yeah, because not only is this the first taste of what the background of the elite hunting group looks like, but it's really, and and this is actually the, the real treaties of this film to Eli Roth. So he made this film not just to talk about the criticisms he received on the first film, but this is actually his takedown of the Bush era administration administration and things like Halliburton and more or less just rich guys going out there and making money at the expense of human lives. So then I wonder, well, also because, yeah, it's rich, but then I'm also, because it's like taking down the 1%, but then the ending of the movie kind of undoes that. Yeah, which is actually one of the reasons why I dropped my score, because I think it's a really confused message. Okay, we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay, so bidding confirmed Todd, Richard Burchie, as well as his friend Stuart Roger Bart are confirmed they are going to kill two of these three girls. So meanwhile, the girls are just having a great spa vacation. They're walking around. They get harassed by the bubblegum gang from the first film, which is the little kids. They spit in Lorna's face. They call them bitches. She offers them something called smint. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't know what that was either. I think it's a spearmint mint. I don't know. But Lorna does get a good dig at Whitney when she calls her a raving bitch. Yeah, maybe that was a true statement. Who knows? <laughs> Probably so. Oh my god, that was an ad lib. <laughs> <laughs> bitch. So from this point on, most of the interactions, like the girls are contrasted by what's happening with the men. So they're having this kind of carefree, hostile tourist experience. And the, the men are getting treated to VIP treatment. So they're arriving by private jet. They're getting picked up in fancy cars. They're getting prostitutes. They get a very funny coaster beeper that will alert them when their time oh, has come to go to the factory. You get that at like fucking like Chili's when you go... <laughs> I I immediately thought of you and your love of chain restaurants, Trace. <laughs> Trace Thurman, party of two, your factory murder room is now available. If only. I just, like, what, like where, where, oh, because I actually know, because when they do get beeped, they're in the fucking um, brothel. Yes, they do. Yeah. <laughs> the fucking brothel. The fucking brothel. Not incorrect. So that night at the fair, we get, again, confirmation of Beth's financial status, as in, you know, hey, audience, pay attention, this is going to be important later on. And across the river, we see that the men are all hanging around because they're more or less looking at the cattle that they're going to kill. Right. And um, we get a little bit of background detail about some of the details of the contract here as well. So Whitney, uh, she calls Miroslav Borat, that's your one incident of true xenophobia in this film which so. yeah i mean again t it's tampered down from that first movie which is like all xenophobia yeah indeed and uh there's a little bit of dancing and lorna is she's hit on by this guy named roman who is a thick scary looking dude oh but also because whitney tricks her into drinking by telling her the cider was made by the children <laughs> Yes, that it's not alcoholic. <laughs> and then Beth's like, this is quite possibly the most alcoholic cider I've ever tasted. Yeah, I do love that line. No, the, the, there's some, it's, I'm sure they, what's something like bitchy, or like, it's like, they're bitchy to each other, but it's not like Black Christmas where you feel like they don't, like, like each other, you know? Right. Yeah, so what's important to note here, and I feel like it's not very evident in the actual film, but Eli Roth goes to great pains to say, 
the reason that Lorna acts the way she does is because she doesn't drink and she's potentially mixing this alcohol with pills. With her meds. So oh. this is why she ultimately ends up going with Roman and being abducted. Mm-hmm. But before that happens, we need to have a scene where Beth refuses to dance with a boy who says, I could have helped you before he is escorted away. The concierge offers to buy her a drink. She says yes, and then she spills it onto Stuart because she doesn't trust him. I mean, she she's a smart-ass final girl. Yeah, she is. I, she's very guarded, and I don't know if part of that is us wanting to read into a lesbian reading where she's maybe not out, and she's just a little bit wary about letting people in or revealing who she is. It is puzzling that they aren't, like, it's not brought up more, but maybe maybe that's Eli Roth saying, well, if I do that, then people are going to say that I'm fetishizing lesbianism or something. Quite possibly. I mean, it's clear as day when you watch the movie. Like, the whole, every interaction that she has with Axel is very clearly a lesbian attraction. Yeah, it's sexualized. Again, not terribly, but no. the fact that it goes unsaid it's to me a bit of a strength as well as a weakness of the film in that regard. yeah uh, do you think you would feel differently if it wasn't eli roth behind the camera and the pen uh, probably i mean if i didn't even know this was an eli roth movie like if i had no idea who he was and i just happened to watch it i would probably also feel differently we have a difficult relationship. No, I mean, that, that's the thing. And I wonder if that's why I get this movie so much slack is because I'm like, there's so much about this movie that I feel like is Eli Roth trying not to be Eli Roth that I like hold it in higher esteem because of it. That's fair. That's fair. Particularly when you look at that first film and you're just like, you are a fucking asshole. And the movies he's done since, like compared to Green Inferno and Knock Knock, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> I actually, I want to talk a little bit more about Knock Knock if we have time, but we'll okay. see. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so she spills this drink onto Stuart, and at this point, this is where we actually get our two protagonists starting to interact. And this is the meaningful groundwork that will all be paid off in the last 10 minutes of the movie when they enter that kill room together. So, he calls her by name accidentally. That's another big kind of tip-off where she's worried. So, Lorna goes off with Roman, she gets abducted, and Whitney is fall down drunk, literally, fall down drunk. I do like when Beth goes to tell Whitney about Lorna, and like, you don't get to hear, it's like in the background, but like, you just see BG Phillips just go, eh, she's fine. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, BG Phillips is having a lot of fun with Whitney. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Beth accompanies Whitney because she is going back to the room with Miroslav, and Beth wants to look out for her friend again this is good female friendship Mm -hmm. depictions and meanwhile whitney's like i hope she's in a cum coma (laughs) (laughs) yeah so beth won't let whitney go with miroslav and then the next morning lorna's not there but they're all at the spa yeah and i do love that the line i i hope she's in a cum coma is when Biju Phillips is in the water and she has a face mask that looks like has a facial. Yes. Yeah. And then another trick of editing because oh, also the subversion where it's Miroslav is not a bad guy. I love that. But then yeah, after she says the come coma, she goes, well, at least she has, she has something to write about in her journal. Cut to Heather Matarazzo. <laughs> <laughs> bound and gagged upside down. Uh, yeah, we get a little bit more with Todd and Stewart, but really it's uh, it's it's all this. So this is now the kind of apex moment of the film. Mm-hmm. When people talk about misogyny in this film, when they talk about being unable to watch this film, this is the scene that they are always talking about. So, okay. I understand complaints about this, but here's the thing. For me... 
it's such an effective scene, not only because of how it's shot, how long it goes on, but also just because of Matarazzo. Like, her cries for help. I think she calls for her mom at one point. Ugh. And that, that's something that will always get to me. If someone cries out for mom, like, I just, like, it kills me. Well, because it infantilizes them, right? Like, it reinforces the fact this is a human being. And when you get scared, all you want is your parents. Like, that is such a, a childhood trauma. Yeah. Um, also, I also respect how much, like, because, like, she had to, um... Oh God! It's, uh, hold on. Back to this Heather Wicks interview. So basically, um, she goes uh, to get to get her ready. They had an, uh, they gave her an inversion machine, and for every day for about a month and a half, she would use the machine and hang upside down for two minutes at a time, then three, then four, eventually getting up to twenty minutes, which is crazy. It's crazy. But on the day they were shooting, they weren't going to have to take her down every five minutes because then that would like be like ten minutes into the schedule and do it every five minutes it just wouldn't work and they had to shoot it in two days so <laughs> mm-hmm. um but then when it comes to her naked her nudity she says in terms of getting naked and having to show my body i felt really lucky and grateful that everyone was incredibly respectful the days we were shooting that i had this pink robe on and i would get go on set and everybody's just very tense you can hear a pin drop she heard a check saying and i'm gonna butcher this but it's a dobri den psa ven which means good day tits out Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when I walked on set for the first time, I could just feel the palpable tension in the room. I took off my pink robe and said in front of every my pink robe and said in front of everybody that phrase. Everyone struggled for a second, and then they just started laughing hysterically. It broke the tension, broke the ice, uh, and that was it. But the truth is, those two days of filming were a complete blur. I would hang probably fifteen feet up in the air, and the only safety precaution was that her feet were in stirrups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she could release herself, like she knew how to get in and out of it, and she felt very comfortable with mm-hmm. it. So it it does sound like it wasn't a bad experience. Like when you read the way that she talks about it compared to how Biju Phillips talks about her death scene, yeah, they have very different reactions. Which is funny because Biju Phillips is, is like the least like disturbing of the two. Oh yeah, I mean it's still upsetting. We'll get to that later, but yeah. So, but when it comes to, like, the misogyny, because here's my thing. It's also, because Matarazzo, and this might sound douchey or ignorant, so, I mean, again, you can counter me on this, but okay. Ma- well, we'll Matarazzo chose to do this. She knew what she was getting into. She appreciates, like, being comfortable on set. She's clearly fine with the scene in its final form, even, like, with how it, like the, that scene is what gets this movie banned in a lot of countries. Right. Does that not play a part into, like, these misogynistic accusations of like how it's how it is misogynistic no i don't think for a lot of people now i i don't think it's incorrect but i think at the end of the day what people take away from this is a male director who puts a nubile young woman Mm -hmm. he hangs her upside down naked the camera lingers to be honest not as much as you might expect considering how long the scene is it goes on for about 6 minutes. I actually don't think that this that she's sexualized at all in this scene despite her nudity. Now granted Bathory is <laughs> which is where I think the other accusation comes from because Eli Roth wrote and directs, right? So this is his idea that he of all the scenes he could have done, he decides to have this woman naked, upside down, and then a woman who writhes orgasmically in her blood. Whether or not the, you know, we all know that this is based in historical fact slash urban legend. Right, that Bathory would bathe in blood to retain her youth. Yeah, and I mean, also, as we talked about in the first film, this is a vain depiction of women, right? So it's a woman who's bathing in the blood of someone to presumably stay young or get off on it sexually. So you could see Eli Ross saying, well, it's not like I had a man 
underneath this. But uh, then a lot of women say, oh, well, it's just another vain depiction of women. And you've got this nude girl up there. Like, fuck off. Yeah. And this is a scene that does profoundly disturb me. Not because it's a woman, but just because, I mean, even if it had been a man uh, upside down like that, like, and doing the exact same things that Matarazzo was doing... I would mm-hmm. still find it equally as disturbing just because it's it's this I have in my notes Jesus this is brutal it's visceral watching this so in case people haven't seen it and don't plan to watch it this woman is lying underneath Heather Matarazzo she's got a giant scythe and she's just scraping it along her body good sound design again yeah there's a part where she like rubs it down she doesn't cut her but like it's just running down her skin and Ugh. like you hear it like because like she hits like a ridge of like like I guess fat, I guess you would say, or something, but like a roll, and it like skips a beat. It skips like a section, and you hear it just like scrape. Oh, it's so intense. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, at a certain point, she decides she's going to start cutting, so she's slashing. This is where the cries really begin. Well, because she cuts the gag off of her, and as soon as she does, that's when she is like going nuts. It is. It's yeah. I think honestly, hearing this scene is harder for me than seeing it. It is. It's deeply upsetting. It's also in certain ways, heavily theatrical. So Eli Roth actually talked about the fact that they tried this with different music behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ultimately says that he he had to shoot this completely differently from every other scene in the film. And he shoots it, uh, he equivocates it to shooting it like a hammer horror film. So he it's very like Grand Ganal. Is there, I don't remember, is there a score in this scene? I think there is. Okay. I mean, I, I, could, I, I could not tell you. So that is the end of Lorna, alas. Rest in peace. Yeah, I mean, it's... But you know what? It's the it's the scene that this movie is remembered for. Oh, yeah. And he calls that, like, this is the set piece for Eli Roth. This, is, this was always intended to be the big one, which is kind of crazy because this is not the climax of the movie. Well, and it's also like... Because, I mean, I love Heather Matarazzo. I mean, I, I think she's fantastic. But it's also like... It's an interesting casting decision for this movie. Yes, I remember being very perplexed when I saw the casting notices. I didn't know the other two actresses, but I knew Heather Matarazzo because I had seen Welcome to the Dollhouse. And it's like, why is she? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What the fuck is she doing in this? (laughs) I mean, this is is what you love, Trace. This is a a female actress trying to break out Mm -hmm. of her comfort zone and do something very different. I mean, yeah, because she was probably like, well, Scream 3 didn't really scratch my itch for horror, oh so God. let me do this one now. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get later. to it. <laughs> but yeah, um, but final say, I, I I understand the complaints about misogyny because this is this is the most brutal scene against a woman in the film, but we're not done yet. We're not done yet. But I, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm trying to think of it. I mean, it is more brutal than anything in the first movie. But yeah. But mm-hmm. but jo- is it Josh? Whatever the first guy that gets his Achilles yeah. t- 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 that tendon cut. I mean that scene is also very brutal. But there's more cutaways in that scene. Yes. Yeah. It's also shorter. Yeah. Much shorter. Yeah. Okay. So at this point, we're back at the spa, and Beth is a little bit despondent. She's worried about Lorna. Axel is giving her a back rub. Whitney has gone off to have sex with Miroslav. And this is actually my favorite uh, edit in the entire film. So Beth closes her eyes, and before she does so, the spa is completely populated with other people. And then when she opens it, she's completely alone. And to me, this is terrifying because she starts to see men in black coming at her and there's no escape. So she's you know going around the spa. It's in Iceland, apparently. There's your Eli Roth Iceland connection once again. Mm-hmm. 
and she ends up going over the wall. There's barbed wire, which is another just choice set design piece. So you're like, why is there a spa with fucking barbed wire on the edge? <laughs> but then, but then we get more resourcefulness from her because then she starts climbing up this like rock wall of like a fountain type thing. I'm like, yep. go you bitch. Like, fuck. Like the whole time, every time Beth does something, I'm like, God, you're smart. Yeah, Beth is on top of it. Her biggest issue is actually that she is empathetic and she doesn't just leave, right? <laughs> well, and we'll, uh, we, yes, there's potentially more there. <laughs> <laughs> so she she escapes from there. She ends up having a run-in with the guy who tried to warn her. His face is all messed up, so clearly the town has gotten to him. She goes into the woods. She has an encounter with the Bubblegum Gang. They end up beating her, and she is rescued by Axel and Sasha, who whisk her away into a car, and Sasha actually shoots one of the kids. Which who... no one ever talks about. No one ever talks about. It. And Eli Roth actually makes mention of that specifically on the audio commentary. He says people love to come at him for the violence in this film, and no one ever talks about the fact that he kills this kid. <laughs> Well, he also doesn't show. I mean, he shows the body later, but it's like facing away. But like, there's blood coming out of the out of the like from underneath, though. Oh, I guess that's true. But like, you still don't see the killing blow, like because it, it's no. it's it, the camera's pointed at Sasha when it happens. Yeah. So this is a uh, this is another indictment of the Bush administration and this idea that you know violence begets violence. So in the case of the film, Sasha is more or less asserting his authority, and these kids will grow up to learn that you solve your problems with violence, and the strongest person, the person with the gun, is the person who wins. Well, I'm all, I'm all there for a kid death, so. Uh, yeah, this one doesn't satisfy me. Yeah, it, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I want my kids deader. <laughs> so, uh, so we're now moving into the last act. Sasha takes Beth back to his place. It's a palace. It's gorgeous. He's got those dumb dogs that Axel is petting. I do love though when she's like, "What does he do? He does auctions." Yeah, <laughs> that's one way of putting it. <laughs> So we get the polite experience that Beth is encountering contrasted by what Whitney is going through. She's tied up in the factory with a bunch of random girls. She's then taken for makeup with an old biddy who... Uh, I love that phrase, old biddy. Old biddy. And uh, Whitney bites the nose off of this woman and then tries to escape. And this is a... Partially, we, we spent a lot of time in Scream talking about how geography gets used in horror films so that you know the layout, so that mm -hmm. when there's a scary sequence, you can benefit from, okay, they went there, they should have gone there, and so on. And this is really just to confirm, once again, there is no escape from this factory. There's cameras everywhere, there's guards, and there's guard dogs. I will say that the, the, this, it, it's the same factory as the first one, because like we see that at the out, like the long shot of the out, like the entrance of it, where it's just like this big, like dilapidated factory. But mm -hmm. on the inside, like this look, it looks like it's just like, you know, the, the guys looking at the security camera, and then there's one hallway in front of them, and that's like where everyone is. Yeah, I think there's a kill floor, and then there's the, that's below ground, and then there's Oh, there's the, the elevator, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there is there is a cool bit though when they they close the gates and like she's like banging and like you just see the security guards like just looking at her laughing at her on the cameras. Yeah, it's grody. Yeah. So again, you know, if you were a woman and watching this, you might think, "Ugh, I don't love that." Okay, so Axel is actually preening Beth to make her up and make her essentially look like her. So she fixes her hair, she does her makeup, she gives her clothes. 
At this point, Beth realizes I'm totally fucked. She discovers a literal trophy room of heads, including Paxton's. Well, and she also sees a picture of her with Svetlana and Natalia from the first movie, and a picture of her with the robber from the train. Yeah, just in case you couldn't figure it out, Axel has been (laughs) in on this the whole time. It's like... You don't, you don't remember this guy? Cool. Here are the two ghosts in the first movie. Don't remember them? Cool. Here's Paxton's head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beth, you in danger, girl. Uh, okay, so um, Todd, his beeper goes off, which means that it's time for him and Stuart to go. And this is another interesting choice. Apparently, this entire scene of them traveling to the factory, walking through, getting prepped. Apparently there was all dialogue here and Eli Roth cut it so that he could use this kind of foreign opera because he felt that it actually gave it a sense of melancholiness that was absent, which I think works. That I remember again watching this at one o'clock in the morning last night, like just being like, that's an interesting choice of music. But yeah, I'm fine with it. Yeah. So Todd has Whitney in his kill room, uh, and this is the other misogynistic complaint, is that Whitney has been done up in makeup, she's got the ball gag in her mouth, and she's dressed up in lingerie. Yeah. So women didn't like that. Right, because you don't have the same thing. Well, no, because Josh is in his boxers in the first movie. Yeah, but it's really not the same kind of thing, right? I mean, like, I, I get that. I feel like I'm going to come across like, well, the men had this and the women didn't, so it's really the same. It's, I'm sorry, that's not what I'm trying aren't to say. Aren't the sexes and genders equal at this point? <laughs> I hate women. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, we've established that over the last year. No, 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 no. no. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm coming across like an anti-feminist, and I'm really not trying to. I'm just trying to like suss out the, like, the reasonings behind some of these things. Um, but yeah, you're right. Why does she have to be in her underwear? Yeah, it's, it, it really is tricky. I don't know if it's that because we have seen this for decades at this point, we were just more cued to paying attention to it and taking grievance with it. I feel like people also have a weirder relationship to male sexuality and maybe we can discuss that when we get to the penis well i also think and we we, i'm just filling in the blanks here and i again i might just be excusing it for it but i also believe that given who is her torturer that he because again they clearly ask for things specifically i believe that this that, that todd would have asked to have her in her underwear oh yes yeah because it's the same reason why beth is dressed up like stewart's wife who I kind of love that the lesbian ends up getting dressed up in, like, the power suit. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, yes, lesbian. <sighs> Stereotype. But, uh, okay, so we'll just go through the Todd stuff, even though it's actually intercut with what's happening in, with Stuart and Beth. So Todd, uh, he accidentally scalps Whitney. He has, a, it's, a, it's actually a mildly amusing, if you can get, past how terrible it is well because he has the first gag where like he unplugs the buzzsaw by accident by moving it too far yes and then yeah he he keeps holding it up to her face as he's trying to like make her cry more and then yeah he accidentally like just like <laughs> and it, it is horrible it's horrible but it's also it is a moment of comedy like it it is clearly intended to be funny and to reinforce the fact that he is shit at this I think it does both. Well, and, and because the camera also keeps panning back to the plug because it keeps tugging on it. So you think it's going to unplug again. So it, again, subverting expectations, it's not what happens. Yeah. So poor Whitney is unfortunately still alive, but she has been partially scalped by this bandsaw. 
and Todd can't take it. So he leaves. He refuses to finish the job, which is part of the contract. This just became very real to him, realer than he thought it was going to be. Yeah, and he has a bit of a breakdown. So he tells the guy to fuck off. It doesn't matter. He's got the money. So he's just going to leave. He gets into the elevator. He has a breakdown, but it's very short-lived because, of course, by not fulfilling his contract, he is now fodder for the dogs. Part one. Um, they love showing his mutilated corpse in this movie. It is torn to shreds by these dogs. Yes, good job, Mr. Nicotero, because that carcass looks... There's apparently just a touch of little steam when you cut back to the, the dogs and the corpse. <laughs> I believe that. Well, because, no, they show it in the elevator, and then they show it later when they're wheeling... When, uh, when Roger Bart's like, where's my friend? And then it just shows the cart going by. <laughs> love it. Love it. Uh... Because really, I mean, Todd Todd is the shithead throughout this entire film, right? He's talking up about how this is what men do, you know, like substituting apex predator, see, blah, blah, blah. I like this critique on toxic masculinity and how, oh, look, this man who's the tough one. Well, and we'll get into it with Stuart in a bit. But um, like, oh, he's actually like can't handle it. But then is it trying to say, oh, he's more effeminate because he can't handle it? No, I think it's saying that people can sometimes talk a big game, but then when they're presented with the consequences of their actions and it becomes real, they can't handle it. I actually relate that a lot to troll culture nowadays, too, where it's like the anonymity of being online, you know, gives you the power to say and do whatever you want. But then like when faced IRL with it, that, you, yeah, you cave and you, you can't handle it. Like, that's exactly what this is. Yeah, it's just an earlier version of it with mm -hmm. more homicide. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's get to Beth and Stuart. Okay. So, of course, Stuart has Beth. She is dressed up like his wife, who is presented earlier in the film as a bit of a ball-busting bitch, and the kids don't appreciate him. And so he is taking his revenge out on her, but it goes back and forth a couple of different ways. It's almost like a mini vignette, uh, like a bit of a play, right? Because it's almost like, because he offers to help her first, but, all right, so do you think that that is genuine, or do you think that that is a ploy? I think the first time it's genuine. Okay. See, I, I thought that too, but I was like, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just a ploy for him to, like, like soften her up a bit. So in the commentary, Eli Ross says he was always going to go through with it, even though Stuart is presented as weaker and waffling throughout most of the film. The fact that when he's presented with this opportunity, when he goes in and he sees this table full of equipment, he doesn't turn away. He doesn't have a second thought. He looks apprehensive, but he's always going to do it. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, this is Eli Roth talking, so... No, I know. Okay. And I do like Roger Bar. Also, interesting casting. So I actually thought that Roger Bar always was gay. I always thought he was a gay man. Um, Me too. I feel like we've talked about this before. Maybe so. And he, he does play typically fe effeminate or gay roles. I and mean, if you've ever seen the producers, mm -hmm. the movie version, Jesus Christ. Um, it's... Yeah, his role in Desperate Housewives is also as a, one of the two gay married men on the street. Right, but he's still obsessed with Brie. It's really weird. Um... Mm. But yeah, and so I, I mean, thought... aren't we all? It's Marsha Cross. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I thought that was interesting casting because, I mean, I think it yeah, adds... It's a... playing into who we believe Roger Bard to be or what we associate him with from prior roles. It also is kind of a commentary on what we associate to be gay or feminine because he is, I think, a more feminine man, but he is a straight yes. man. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's uh, it's a good mirror back to us. Like, so why do we think that he might be gay? Because he's not 
the Todd kind of character. Exactly. And, th- and that's why I love the disposition. And I, right now, love the switcheroo with them, but I feel like you might change my mind. So let's see. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not my intention. Yeah, so he ends up actually releasing her, and they're having this heart-to-heart, and then it's at this point, we also got a quick cutaway that reveals that Miroslav was not in on this, and he's being eaten by a cannibal, who, of course, is that director of Cannibal Holocaust. I forgot about that, and then, like, like, it shows him pull the meat out of his leg and, like, go put it on the plate. It's really gross. It's good again it's another really good looking effect and he's just like twitching i mean again the the, the actor reactions of the, like, the, like him lorna whitney like all their reactions to like what's happening to them is so visceral and realistic that i it makes it that much more disturbing despite the fact that this this particular scene is also kind of played for comedy yeah so i can't remember what changes stewart's mind apart from the fact that he does he just realize this is what he actually wants? That's no, that's the thing. So he lets her off, and he and she goes to open the door, and she's like, "It's locked." And then he hits her over the head. He puts her back in the chain, and then they come with Whitney's photo. And yeah, so this is the third and final bidding sequence in the film. Or sorry, the second bidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, second. Uh, but yeah, then he shows to Beth, and then he, she's he's like, "Your friend did like look at your friend, blah blah blah." And then he goes and kills her again. Shown on a security camera, he decapitates her, but Roman moves in front of the of the footage before we actually see the killing blow, which I thought was a surprising bit of restraint, but maybe Eli Roth was like, you know what? We've already seen her get scalped, so it's it's probably okay to not see her get decapitated. It's both. He actually says, I felt like I didn't need to show people what happens because I've already shown stuff, but also because he thought that people would enjoy speculating more. Spe- so what, like, what more is there to speculate? He One step forward, two steps back. <laughs> uh eli roth you come so close yeah okay so Stuart kills whitney and then he comes back in and he you know he begins to terrorize beth by putting whitney's locket on her he starts to talk to her as though she is his wife and at this point we start to get some good psychology from beth once again she's very smart she's on the ball and so no, but and this and i brought this up to you last night and you, you kind of questioned me but see i i brought up that Stuart is an incel because he makes a comment about how his wife like never has sex with him, and, like he does all he can for her, and like like he she, like she doesn't find him attractive. She's like he, like he he's the good guy, and blah 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 blah. And you're gonna laugh at me so hard. I learned literally last week that incel stood for involuntary celibate. I did not know that was what it stood for. <laughs> well, I mean, it's one of those internet terms where you don't often hear the full term; you just hear the abbreviation. Right, and I'm like, I, 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 yeah, for sure. But I just feel like that's like a. Again, an interesting choice to have for Eli Roth to write this, what I perceive to be an incel, into this, like, again, what I perceive to be a feminist horror film. Right. So the only reason that I didn't agree with you is because it hadn't really occurred to me under those terms. But then when you presented it as such, I realized, yeah, you know what, this is, this was before the term existed, but it definitely qualifies. Got it. But yeah, the psychology the, the psychology going on here where she's playing into the role. Yeah, so at this point, she she does what you're told to do if you ever find yourself in a situation where you have been kidnapped. And it is that you need to help this person to understand that you're a human being. So she refers to herself as distinct from his wife because he's trying to roleplay a fantasy where he murders his bitch wife. And she's like, I'm not your wife. I'm this other girl, this nice person who's done nothing to you. 
And then this is actually one of the things that I had forgotten and I didn't like, which is that she turns herself into an object of desire. And there's a near rape sequence that I had completely blocked out. I also had forgotten this and it does feel a bit extra. Uh, yeah, it, like, it like unnecessary. Need, like, I get her playing into it, but, like, then that we actually, it gets that far to where he actually is about to, like, penetrate her. Yeah, and the camera work is such that you're focused on Beth's face, which, if people have watched rape revenge films, this is often how they shoot the rapes in those films. And I know that Roth would know this because he's a connoisseur of these motherfucking movies. I do wonder if, though, he... He thinks that we think that there is never a point where Beth doesn't have the upper hand. Hmm. He doesn't mention it per se, but this was only one of three commentaries on the DVD that I could have watched. So maybe he talks about it on one of the other two. And you did say that one of the commentaries is Lauren German and the actress that plays XL, right? Correct. Yes. See, and that's, I would be very interested to hear that. I mean, granted, some of the cast commentaries, they don't really get much into the meaning of things. They just talk about the experience filming. So like it's a, it could be a hit or miss thing. But yeah. as two females, I wonder what they what they have to say about this scene. Uh, yeah, we'll tell you what. I'll, I'll watch it and I'll report back. That was the main reason I didn't check it out is because I was worried it was going to be her talking about what the process was like of filming right. this. So. No, I mean, I, I get it. And like it very well could be. Uh, yeah. I, have, I have the DVD there so I can watch it too. Okay, well, we but, we will check back in. <laughs> but yes, no, I, I agree. This almost like very near rape is not completely necessary. Um, no. it's it doesn't really serve a purpose at all. No, except to get him into a compromised situation. So she headbutts him. She hits him with a crowbar. She ties him to the chair with chains. She destroys the camera. And then she inadvertently activates the alarm, but not before puncturing his eardrum, which is a nice callback to his earlier fear of needles. Yes, but I love like the, what's the code? Fuck you! What's the code? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, it's your birthday. That is fucking sick. Yeah. Which, of course, it is actually not. That is the alarm to alert the guards that she has gained the upper hand. So the guards arrived, the dogs arrived, and uh, at this point, she has Stuart in the chair. She's got scissors over his exposed penis. She got his dick in a compromised situation. It is real intense. Mm -hmm. And you (laughs) you can see Shaft. Oh, no, it's like, and you're about to see more of Shaft. You betcha. So she demands to buy her way out of this. So she wants to see Sasha because she knows that Sasha is in charge. She's holding Stuart prisoner. And Sasha comes in. He doesn't really believe her. And then she starts dropping business language on him. And he starts taking her very seriously. So this is our callback to the fact that Beth has lots of money. And it is her money. Well, and this is the thing, too, because Stuart says, I'll pay more, I'll double it. And then they bring up, you have a mortgage on your house. That's why your friend paid your way. So mm. then it's like, oh, the poor have no power. Yeah. So this this was actually the other piece that I ended up not liking. So Jordan Cruciola actually um, uh, replied to my tweet about this movie. And she goes, let's also not forget my favorite moral of Hostel 2, Rich People Always Win. It's mm-hmm. like an anti-eat the rich movie. A little bit, because the whole thing seems like a class critique about these rich men who can do whatever they want, which is aping the first film. But of course, because we're actually seeing behind the scenes and seeing how awful these guys are, it starts to hit home more. But then the end of this film subverts that, but not in a good way, because it really does say, like, if she didn't have money, she would just be dead. Yeah. And that doesn't 
like that doesn't work for me that it defangs the feminism of the message and it also defangs the class critique yeah because it's basically like it's not her femininity that gets her out it's her wealth it's her stature it's her position her wealth yeah well Um, and the fact that it's it's not her money like she didn't make this money herself even it's an inheritance from her dead mom so Mm -hmm. you can't even make the argument that she is like she is savvy that's undeniable she's played it smart this and whole this whole film she's done nothing to justify being in this situation in the way that assholes could normally say like she didn't get drunk and go off with a guy in a boat like lorna and she didn't fuck a guy in a sauna like whitney she literally just ended up here so this is what i want to bring up then too because former guest bj colangelo also had something to say about this film she's not a fan of this movie or roth so i mentioned how i I love the fact that we have like a smart likable relatable and queer final girl in this movie bj responded with um except if she didn't have the queer attraction in the first place the whole film would have been avoided it feels like a cautionary tale of giving in to your desires unless you're as rich as ellen and can protect yourself (laughs) and then i I mentioned like well it's kind of the same in the first movie though you know like the guys like they give into their desires and they're killed for it Mm -hmm. she said the difference is that there isn't an expected warning about being straight the way there is being queer so that the first movie isn't the same message it's romanticized for straight americans to have a once in a lifetime love connection in europe queerness is us asking for it or if like you know people are like oh like you know you'll go to europe and have a magical tryst queer people are killed and comments read they should know better yeah i hmm i had conflicting emotions when i saw that because i don't necessarily think she's wrong but at the same time i don't feel like that's the message that people take away from this well so here's the thing though i mean like and this is really getting into like an intentional like intentionality versus like i don't know what but i don't think that's ross intention at all no although we've we've never shied away from being like well fuck that because that's a reading and we well and that's exactly what i'm saying though 100 percent is the movie to blame if people walk away from that I don't, yeah, no. I don't know because I also think it's just the again the life that the culture even back in two thousand seven or like you know like, or especially because of two thousand and seven <laughs> right but like it's a combination of factors that if someone takes that away from this movie it's like okay well is that the movie's fault of course yes partly but it's also like I didn't walk away from this movie thinking that mm-hmm. but if someone if, if B J does I mean that again it doesn't negate her reading yeah no not at all because that. As we mentioned, it is a reading of a film. You can read a film any way you want based on... But but going into a reading of a film is based on your life experiences. Yeah. I mean, the other other thing that I... So I said I don't necessarily agree with BJ, but then when I was thinking back to that and writing this recap, which is... I apologize, it's gone very long. I did think of this final scene. So, you know she gets her way out she gets a tattoo and then the final scene of this movie is her getting her revenge on axel Mm -hmm. and she becomes this queer avenging angel who punishes the girl who misled her and i i thought to myself okay so if we do end up looking at this film as a queer warning don't you know don't trust strangers who like don't trust your attraction and follow a stranger to a to a weird foreign country think about what it also turns beth into 
the whole movie, she's been this sane, rational, deeply empathetic individual. And the final scene of this movie is her fucking decapitating this girl that she had a crush on. Reading, readings are reading. You can read a movie however you want. But in terms of like how I feel the, the what the film is trying to say, I don't think the film is trying to say anything negative about queerness or like, you know, oh, it's bad to be queer. It's like, you know, her falling for this is like, it's because she was queer. But I definitely do think the film is wanting us to root <laughs> for this final scene. And admittedly, I do. And it's played for laughs again because the music that plays when they play soccer with her head mm-hmm. is very goofy. Very goofy. But yes, looking at it, I'm like, mm, should I be rooting for this? Should I be happy that she's now part of the elite hunting group? Yeah, because if you compare it to the original film where the two other girls get killed, that's only because they're in the street and Paxton sees them. Like, yeah, he could have chosen to go around them, but he doesn't. He drives over them. But in a, that feels more like it was a, it wasn't motive driven. It was a, a moment of indecision where he said, you know what? I could choose to be the better person and not kill these girls, but you know what? Fuck them. I want revenge. And he does. Whereas here, Beth had to coordinate this with the bubble gun gang yeah so that they would set up this trap with xl so that she could then decapitate her and that i don't know i don't love that message i also don't love that she gets her elite hunting group tattoo on a tramp stamp yeah it's like it it (laughs) I, i again i had forgotten that and all i could think of was no one else gets this anywhere and maybe it's just oh she's trying to put it somewhere that it'll be covered up but at the same time this is eli roth and we know that he has certain opinions about the depiction of women so for a woman to then get a tattoo on a tramp stamp and that's and that's the thing too is you know it's like would you feel differently if it was a different director and writer I mean, it doesn't matter because it is the way it is. But it's like, yeah, because it's Eli Roth, like it's all automatically looked at more harshly, I feel like. I'm being more critical, perhaps, right. but... I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't because of based on what we've seen from Eli Roth. Right. I'm, I am justified in this. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. So this is, this is the end of our film. It ends with Axel's decapitated head getting played to jaunty music. And we did gloss over uh, him calling her a cunt. Sorry. Yes. So she she is bartering with Sasha and Sasha is totally going in. He's like, yeah, you know what? As long as you've got the money and as long as you're prepared to kill someone, I'll let you out of here. And Stuart is having none of it. And he calls her a stupid fucking cunt. Yeah. He says, they're still going to kill you, you stupid fucking cunt. And she says, what did you call me? And he <laughs> says, I called you a cunt. And as we know, this is best trigger word. And she laps off that dick walks out of the room and feeds it to the dogs. The scene though of her, so the scene where she grabs the dick is two seconds longer in the animated cut because you actually it is full like shaft and balls that you just oh, yeah. see. You see everything. And it is an enormous penis. Like because it's totally flaccid. Like obviously you got a vice under dick, you're gonna be flaccid as fuck. And it is <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and this is Eli Roth trying to give people a fuck yeah moment where all the guys in the audience go and all the girls do a fist pump cheer kind of deal and listeners please let us know your reactions to that scene i mean i do i buy into it i 100 percent support beth i am all about the fuck yeah because that guy is a dick and he deserves to lose his now i do want to just 
just because the word cunt is so significant in this film, I thought that it was interesting given also our our tendency to use it in an affectionate or not so affectionate. <laughs> well, no, I feel like we use it in a way where we're trying to reappropriate the term and take the stigma out of it. And I appreciate that, as you said earlier, not everybody feels that way, but I do want to direct people to a source that I found when I was doing some research on this. So there's a podcast, it's discontinued now, but it's called Very Bad Words by Matt Findler. And he takes one bad word or one phrase for each episode. And he has an author named Katrin Redford on this episode, which is about the C word. And she talks about her experience reading this really infamous book from 1998 called Cunt, A Declaration of Independence, and how it changed the way that she looks at the term. And I'll just direct people to listen to that or to do a bit of research on it. But we'll post it in the socials. Yeah. The big takeaway that I got from it was a lot of people say, oh, well, why would you say the word cunt when you could say vagina? And the fact is, is that they're not the same word. And I didn't know this, so I'm going to share it. So vagina uh, has Latin origins, like a lot of other words. And one of the definitions is that it is a sword sheath. And if that sounds awkward or weird to you, it's because one of the ways that vagina is literally like the nomenclature of it is that it is for birthing children and it is to uh, basically it is a path for a penis. So if you want to if you want to get into problematic words like that's actually not great if all things considered, whereas if you want to get if you want to be more appropriate, cunt is technically all parts. So vagina is not all female reproductive parts. Uh, it's the whole shebang, both external and internal, including the labia, the vulva, the pen- pudendum, vagina, and clitoris. So if you want to think about the fact that we have turned cunt, which is a more appropriate word for what we're often thinking about, we have uh, weaponized it and sexualized it. Really, at the end of the day, cunt is a more appropriate term for a strong woman with sexual desire, and we've turned that into a bad thing. Now, I'm not suggesting it's going to be easy for people to just be like, I'm tossing out cunt all the time here. But I think it's important to acknowledge that this is not the way the phrase began. It actually, like, it goes way, way, way back in terms of genealogy from around the world. But also, we, like, more or less patriarchy has turned it into an insult and something that is derogatory and offensive. And I guess I would encourage women to think about saying, you know what, fuck, fuck men for doing this and reclaim the cunt. There's our subtitle for the episode. (laughs) 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 No, that's, that's actually fast. I I didn't know any of that. So that's very fascinating. I, I kind of love that you. I didn't stop you from saying that, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> okay, well, I guess that that's hostile. Too. That's hostile part two. I mean, final thoughts. I, I this this film still really works for me. I totally get like it is still problematic in some aspects. It doesn't really affect me as much as it might someone else. Clearly, but I still I think it's Eli Roth's best film, which again I get isn't saying much. 
but I do think this is a legitimately good film. Yeah, I think that this is head and shoulders above Hostile Part 1, although I do also think that they work well as a two-part movie experience because the second one really does comment on the first one. Well, I think also if you watch them back-to-back, I think Hostile Part 2 is probably going to look better (laughs) than if you just randomly watch Hostile Part 2 by itself. Mm Mm-hmm, 100%, yeah. I do think that this film gets a lot of flack from people who either don't remember it well, or they maybe went in with some preconceived notions. I think the responses that Jordan and BJ and other people, particularly feminists, have raised have merit, and that was much more glaring for me on this rewatch. But as much as I don't like Eli Roth, and I don't always like these movies— I do kind of love that we've been able to have these conversations about them. So his his work sparks conversation, and I think meaningful conversation, even if the work itself doesn't always merit it. Mm-hmm, for sure. So that's how I feel about this. Well, and again, handling queer... I mean, there isn't really any like overt queerness. I, well, no, there, no, because you have Salad Fingers, who's gay. Uh, handling queerness in two very different ways in these two movies. Yes, and and even the deliberate decision to cast a publicly out lesbian in Lorna, because Heather Matarazzo is... Oh, right! How did we not even mention that? Yes, publicly out lesbian Heather Matarazzo. <laughs> uh... Sorry, I'm just like, oh yeah, she's one of us. Like, we don't even need to acknowledge her. <laughs> no, Everybody for sure. Knows, right? Well, in case you didn't know, yeah, the, the most brutal kill in this movie is the lesbian actress. Uh, well, when you say it that way, it makes it sound like garbage. <laughs> hey, she took the role too, okay? She wanted to take the role. This is true. I do feel like we've given people a lot of different things to think about, though. So I would love to hear prompts from people who, you know, they, they feel uncomfortable revisiting this film. Do they feel like it's feminist? Do they feel like it's queer positive? Is the class critique skewered or weird or challenging? Like, people, hit us up. Yeah. I 100%. I mean, and also, I, I really hope y'all watch this movie. If you didn't, hopefully the, you listen to this makes you kind of curious to go and watch it because it is brutal. There are some really hard to watch moments. Honestly, the war, nothing. if you can make it past that Bathory scene, like you'll be fine for the rest of it. But yeah, I, I think this is a good discussion starter of a film. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy that we covered it. I'm glad that I got to revisit it. And yeah, that's Hostile Part 2. That's Hostile Part 2, man. So um, before we announce what we're covering next week, if you want to reach us, uh, I mean, we have our Facebook page, Horror Queers, Facebook group, Horror Queers group. Uh, our Twitter handle is at Horror Queers. Uh, you can email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. Go to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. If you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like The Grudge and Underwater, or listen Ooh. to our audio commentary on Scream 2. Wait, Scream. On Just screen. screen. Original flavor. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what are we covering next week? Okay, so we have run out of sequels, Trace. We did Scream 2, we've done Hostel 2, and next week we would be brought up with Jennifer's body if we were doing a match for match. So, in the spirit of lesbians, in the spirit of cheerleaders, in the spirit of lesbian cheerleaders who eat people we're gonna watch all cheerleaders die from 2013 yes important distinction this is lucky mckee's all cheerleaders die director of may he apparently did do a a a version of this in 2001 and he remade it into the 2013 version which is the readily available one so if you haven't seen it before and you need to watch it make sure you look for the 2013 one 
Mm-hmm. And this is actually a co-directed film with Chris Silverston, who I don't know, and I didn't realize that it was. So I'm intrigued Wait, to revisit this film. You know who that is, right? He is the director of I Know Who Killed Me. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> Oh, God. Hold on to everything, folks. We may it- have a winner. I, so hey, honestly, I don't remember liking this movie. I don't remember enjoying it very much. Neither do I. It is, uh, it's Chris Syvertson, by the way, not Silverstone. Thank you. Yes, I Im- I put in an L where there wasn't one. But yes, uh, so it'll be an experience. I've only seen it once. I don't remember much, except that I didn't really like it. But maybe I'll feel differently upon analyzing it. Right? Yeah. Surprisingly <laughs> enough, when you talk about something for two hours, you gain a new appreciation for it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, okay, well, on that note, we can cross out Hostel Part 2. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, but disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, the poor queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.